It's Psalm 109, and you can find that on page 612. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent, for people are wicked and deceitful, who are wicked and deceitful, have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names bloated out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth, for he never thought of doing a kindness, but haunted to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse, may it come back to him. He found no pleasure in blessing, may it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment, it entering into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a bell tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake, out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it's in your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servants rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshipers, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our great God and Father, we praise you that you are our great and glorious creator. You are our savior and redeemer. We praise, praise you that you speak to us through your word, the Bible. And I pray that you would meet with us this morning. Show us more of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So look down with me at uh, verse 1, Psalm 109. 
O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. How do we respond when we're in a crisis and when we cry out to God, he seems silent? Like all people, we go through the same troubles in this world. Uh, illness, loss, bereavement, financial struggles, relationship breakdowns. And so in these situations, how do we respond when God seems far away and when God seems silent? How do we respond in a crisis? So do we try and sort things out by our own strength? Or do we ask a, a friend or family member to help us out? Or if we're trusting in Jesus, do we cry out to God? And yet I'm sure there'll be many times in our lives where we have been in a crisis and yet God seems silent, far away from us. And sometimes being a Christian brings more hardship. So from the office gossip, where Christians are ridiculed to losing friends uh, for holding Christian views. Life as a Christian can be really hard, especially here in the UK, where our culture is increasingly anti-God. But in many places around the world, Christians have a far worse time. Many people, when they come to Christ, are shunned by their families. Communities seize their livelihood, and physical violence often comes against them. And so how do we respond? How do our brothers and sisters respond in a crisis? And worst of all, God seems silent in those times. We want God to act. We want God to act against people who sideline or trample believers. We want God to rescue his people in those situations. Well, Psalm 109 is a situation uh, similar that David faced. Uh, king David was the greatest king of the Old Testament. He was famously a man after God's own heart. He loved God deeply. And yet King David had many a crisis in his life. He was chased by Saul. He had to flee from his son Absalom. And yet, he shows us what we can do in a crisis. And famously, God made uh, wonderful promises to him in 2 Samuel 7, that from his line, an eternal line of kings would come, and that through him, the Messiah would come and bring blessing and salvation to the world. And so, so David in this psalm is a model believer. He shows us how to pray. But he's also the leader of God's people. And so Psalm 109 is a deep personal crisis for David. He has been hounded to death by these accusers. And yet God, who made all these promises to him, seems silent. And yet he prays to God because he knows this big truth. God will vindicate his suffering king and his suffering people. God will vindicate his suffering king and his suffering people. It's a psalm that starts in anguish, and yet by verse 30, David ends the psalm with praise, overflowing praise for God. And nothing has changed in his situation. David is confident in the goodness of his God. And the last two verses of the psalm give us the reason for his confidence. Look down with me at verse 30. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. 
in the great song I will praise him, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save his life from those who condemn him. This is law court language, where God is standing at his right hand side, and he will save him from the enemies who condemn him. And so it's with this confidence that David knows he can pray to God. God will vindicate his suffering anointed king and his suffering people. So with that in mind, let's go through Psalm 109 and see how King David prays verses 1 to 5, verses 1 to 5, verses 1 to 5, 1 to 5, 5, the king's prayer in crisis, verses 6 to 20, the king prays for judgment against his enemies, and then verses 21 to 29, the king prays for his deliverance. So firstly, verses 1 to 5, the king's prayer in his crisis. The psalm begins with, my God, who I praise. But quickly, David gets to his agonizing situation. David reminds us from the very beginning that even in a crisis, even in a deep crisis, we can learn something wonderful about our God that leads to praise. Even in a deep crisis, we can learn something wonderful about God that leads us to praise. But after this initial praise, David gets to the point. He is surrounded by noisy accusers. Look down at verse 2. Wicked and deceitful men open their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. And so King David, he is surrounded by a band of hostile men. People who are attacking him maliciously with their words. Yet God is silent. It's a battle of words. Again, it's a, a law court type scene. Words are spoken against the anointed king. And so the king pleads that words would be spoken for his vindication. And we gain insight into just how wicked and malevolent these accusers are. So look again at verses 2 to 5. They are wicked in their character. They seek harm in their motivation. They're deceitful, they're lying, and they're unjustified in their cause. Verse 3, they attack me without cause, and they repay me evil for good. What's more, these enemies were once David's friends, and yet David has done them nothing but good. Verse 4, in return for my friendship, they accuse me. We all know just how hurtful words can be, but they're all the more hurtful from friends or loved ones. And David's friends are attacking him with these hurtful words. Perhaps uh, there are a few characters in David's life who these people could be. Perhaps King Saul, who hunted him down, or later in Absalom's uh, reign, when Absalom, his son, usurped David from the throne. We don't know who these accusers are, but that's not the point. David, probably through all his life, has been praying to God whenever a crisis comes. And so in verses 1 to 5, we see the king's prayer in a crisis. He takes it to God. And then in verses 6 to 20, we see he prays for judgment against his enemies. Most of the prayer focuses on one particular enemy, likely the leader of this band of hostile men, but it's widened out to his accusers later on. 
And as we hear this prayer, it doesn't sit well comfortably with our modern ears. We hear verse 10, may his children be wandering beggars. Let no one extend kindness to him and take pity on his fatherless children. It doesn't sit well with us. How can David pray such a prayer? Well, let's see some of the features of David's prayer to see the rightness of it. Firstly, note, David is praying a prayer. David is praying a prayer. He isn't cursing his enemies, but he's praying for God to act on his behalf. He is entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. So look down with me at verse 6. This is all prayer language. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. An accuser is exactly what this man had been to David. And so he's praying that this enemy would drink his own medicine. And again, this is law court language. Standing at his right hand. David prays that his accuser would be condemned for the way he's treated him. Because it's only when this accusation is removed that he, the king, will be vindicated. If you're an innocent person and you've been falsely accused of a crime, you stand condemned until the judge says, not guilty. Several years ago, I served on jury service and there was a woman who worked for a bank and she was accused of conspiracy to commit fraud. The prosecution made a strong case. They brought argument after argument. Uh, They had highlighted some banking errors that she had made. But the defense lawyer showed that she didn't know the people who did commit the fraud. Her accuser was silenced, and she was vindicated. And David is praying for the same thing. He's praying for his, his accusers to be silenced and for him to be vindicated. So look down at verse 7. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. And again, this is law court language. The accuser is a wicked man. And if his prayers are to be answered, there will be no justice in the universe. Again, this is all prayer language. The point, let, let, may, may, may. He is praying for God to act on his behalf. And another reason why this prayer is so right is the seriousness of the issue. And so David is not praying merely against a personal wrong against him. He is God's anointed king. And his enemy is in a place of leadership. And he has tried to remove David as king, dethrone David as king. And so this is not merely a personal wrong against David. This is an act of treason, high treason against God's king. And it's the most serious wrongdoing possible because it threatens the very fabric of God's purposes in our world. So David, the anointed king, was the means by which God's people would live under God's rule and experience the blessing of relationship with him. And so trying to remove David as king was trying to unravel God's purposes in this world. To illustrate this, I want us to cast our minds back to uh, arguably the best Disney film of all time, uh, The Lion King. And one core theme of the movie is the circle of life. So when King Mufasa is reigning, uh, everything is, is good and right. Uh, all his creatures thrive and flourish. But when the villain Scar 
uh, kills Mufasa, everything is undone. Um, everything in the kingdom falls apart. The animals are overhunted and the rain cease and darkness comes over the land. The good fabric, the wise king, is unraveled. And we see this in our world today in the Putins of our world, where wicked leadership leads to lives being destroyed, broken families, and cities in ruins. And so the crime against which David prays is not a personal vendetta, but it's high treason against him, the anointed king, which threatens God's purposes for us as well. And so that's why this prayer language is so serious, because it's treachery against God's king. And then in verses 9 to 15, David then moves to pray against the traitor's family. And perhaps this, these are the verses which most trouble us. So look down at verses 9 to 15. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. And this language unsettles us. We think, has David gone a bit far? But David is not being vindictive. Uh, in the West, we tend to think of ourselves as free-floating individuals, able to make our own choices. However, our beliefs and values are shaped heavily by the culture we grew up in. Unless something wonderful breaks us out of our pattern of thinking, we will behave as our fathers did. Children of alcoholics, of alcoholics, of alcoholics, 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 often become alcoholics. Those who have been abused do often abuse others. And it's a sad thing to see this sin which gets passed down the generations. One example of this in Bible history is the Amicalites. They are people who hated God uh, throughout the Bible. So in the Exodus, when the, the Israelites came out of um, slavery, um, the Amicalites fought against them and hated them. Then 500 years later, their descendant, Agag, king of Amalek, fought against Saul. And then another 500 years later, Haman, who was also an Amicalite, he plotted to, to destroy the people of God. And so these people were in their generation hating God, hating the people of God. And so that's what David is praying for here. So this accuser and his family, they share the same anti-God DNA. And so that's why he prays for their judgment against them. And so there is a rightness to what David is praying, that justice would be done. And he drives us home in verses 16 to 19. So look down at me at verse 16. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. The imagery here is of a great vicious dog hounding to death the most vulnerable. Now, I don't know if you, are, uh, if you like dogs, if you are afraid of dogs. I'm not talking about chihuahuas or little poodles or things. But imagine a great big, big hound, and it's chasing you down, and it's barking at you and growling at you. This is the sort of imagery 
that David is talking about. And they are hounding to death the most vulnerable, the poor, the needy, the brokenhearted. Verse 17, he loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, in his bones like oil. And so the punishment for which David prays fits precisely the crime for which uh, this man has committed. This enemy is not a good man who has slipped up with one act of betrayal. No, this man has become entrenched in his hostility towards David and by extension, God's people. He loved to pronounce a curse so much that it became a part of him, like a piece of clothing. And cursing others ended so much, it ended up in his bones. And so David prays that God's curse would fall on his enemy. But he prays this in line with what God has already said. Remember, all the way back in Genesis, uh, chapter 12, where God said to Abraham, Whoever curses you, I will curse. And whoever blesses you, I will bless. And so it's very different to a personal vendetta. David is praying in line with what God has already promised to do, that they would bring cursing on those who have cursed God's people. And so in the final section of the psalm, verses 21, David then prays for his own deliverance. In verses uh, 22 to 24, we see just how desperate David had become. He is poor and needy, and his heart is wounded within him. He is like an evening shadow that fades away. He is like a small locust that you can brush, uh, brush aside. He has been reduced to skin and bones. He has fasted for God to deliver him. And now he is an object of scorn and reproach. Just imagine how desperate you would feel if you were in David's situation. And yet the reason he prays for his deliverance is surprising. He doesn't pray for the renewal of his comfort, but look, he prays for the glory of God's name. Look down at verse 21. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. And then down to verse 26. Help me, Lord, save me according to your love, let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. And so David prays all that he prays for God's name to be glorified. And the reason David prays this is that he wants people everywhere to know that God is a faithful God who keeps his promises to his anointed king and to all his people who belong to that king. People need to know that this God will keep his promises. And the only way God's uh, name will be upheld here is that God's king is vindicated. This is a whole grounds of confidence for David's prayer, that God would be glorified by vindicating him. And that's why David has such confidence. And he will join in praise with that great throng of believers in verse 31. Okay, so we've seen how David prayed this psalm. He was a king in crisis. He prayed for judgment against his enemies. And he prayed for deliverance, that God would rescue him for the glory of God's name. But I imagine, how, how, how are we meant to pray this prayer? 
how are we meant to sing this psalm? Uh, as um, many of us, our situation is very far removed from David's situation. We're not surrounded by a band of accusers. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, who are persecuted for, for Jesus' name, might be much more readily to, to pray this prayer. I remember a few years ago, uh, ISIS publicly beheaded um, Egyptian leaders of the church, and I thought, praise God, there is a day of justice for this horrific act. But for many of us, this intense persecution is very far removed from us. So on first glance, you might think we might pray the psalm something like this. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I want to pray about my difficult colleague and neighbor. Uh, They've mocked me for being a Christian. You know how difficult they've been. Please may they die, and may their children be wandering beggars. When you say it like that, it sounds really strange and difficult to hear, but I don't think that's what the psalm is telling us to pray. But there is a man on whom all God's promises depend on, a betrayal of whom threatens the very government of this world, a man who is utterly pure and righteous, that his betrayal is 100% unjustified. He prays for the glory of God's name. He prayed, Father, your will be done. And above all, he loved his enemies so much that he himself became a curse for them. And so this is not our voice, but this is the voice fully and finally of the Lord Jesus, the greatest son of David, God's anointed king. And Jesus alone can lead his people in such dangerous prayers. So he too was betrayed by a close friend, Judas Iscariot. He too was hounded to death by his accusers. He prayed for Peter. He prayed for his executioners. But to sobering thoughts, he never prayed for Judas to repent. Presumably with tears in his eyes, he let Judas betray him to his death. And so there is such a thing as a hardened evil. When people become so hardened in their anti-godness that they never repent. We don't know who these people are, but wonderfully there are some people who are terribly deep in sin who do repent. Think of Saul of Tarsus, one of the great persecutors of the church, who became the Apostle Paul, who became a trophy of God's grace. So we don't know he will repent and he won't. And Jesus leads us in praying for these people. Psalm 109 finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He prayed for the condemnation of his enemies and his own vindication. We know from the rest of scripture that God has resolutely answered his prayer to vindicate the Lord Jesus. For on the day when darkness covered the skies, God seemed silent and God seemed silent. God's king was hung up on a cross. He was mocked by onlooking crowds. The day of the cross is a day of ultimate vindication. Because on the third day, Jesus smashed through the grave in victory. He conquered sin and death and evil. And he rose up again in glory. Listen to Colossians 2 verse 15 that puts it like this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... 
Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so Jesus defeated forever the powers of darkness, the powers of anti-godness in our world. And one day, everything evil, everything that opposes God, will be removed. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we hear of the great prostitute, Babylon, who represents everything anti-God in our world. Listen to her destruction here. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. He corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of of his servants. And so if we are in Christ, we are on the winning team. All the forces that oppose God will be judged and conquered, and all his people will be gloriously vindicated. And we will be that people, that great throng of believers, rejoicing in verses 30 and 31. So as we close, a few applications. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can you see the folly of opposing God's King, the Lord Jesus? Jesus' prayer for justice has been answered. He and his people will be vindicated and his enemies will be judged. And so it would be very foolish to stand opposed against this glorious king. And so join the winning side. Come to the one who became a curse for you so that God's judgment wouldn't fall on us. If we are a Christian, we are following Jesus Take heart that we are on the winning side. Take heart in God's promise to vindicate his anointed king. There will come a day when God's people aren't sidelined or trampled on anymore, but we will be raised and exalted with Christ. There will come a day when our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed in us. Know that God has indeed spoken He has not remained silent. God has spoken fully and finally in the Lord Jesus. And so when we pray and we're in a a crisis and God seems silent, know that God has spoken. Know that he has spoken fully and finally in Jesus. And we can pray with confidence that he stands at our right hand. He listens to us. He cares for us. And he has promised to be with us through every situation. He will lead us through every crisis, home to glory. And so trust him. When you're in a crisis, cry out to him. He has spoken and he listens to you. Let us stand together with our dear brothers and sisters who are persecuted for the name of Christ. Pray that they would know the certain hope that they have in Jesus. Pray that they would bring him glory as they are persecuted for his name. Get behind organizations such as Open Doors, which partner and support uh, persecuted Christians. That's a great thing to do. And if we're going through a personally hard time right now, and God seems silent, hold on to this. God will surely keep his promises for you in the Lord Jesus. Let us pray.
Father God, we praise you that you indeed stand at the right hand of the needy, and you have raised and exalted the Lord Jesus above every name. Praise you that he has defeated all of God's enemies, and all of your promises come together in Jesus. When we go through various trials, would we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and would we know your glorious presence in those trials? With these truths uh, that you vindicate your people in Christ, encourage and strengthen us in our faith, and lead us to an unshakable, joyful hope in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.